A church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of elders. Um, all right, so we're gonna we're gonna spend some time on this, talking about you know how this morning, how do we love people in inside the church? How do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the family? And uh, for some of us, we might think, well, that's that's an easy thing to do. It's it's easy to to love other people inside the church. And there are other times where we might recognize that that's sometimes a very hard thing to do. There's a, a challenge uh, to it because it, it calls us to go beyond and deeper. Uh, in relationship with people that maybe we wouldn't naturally do that with. And so as we uh, talk about this, I want us to just kind of keep in mind that there are differences uh, within the church. We learned this um, not too long ago. Um, Back when COVID was happening, we realized that there are differences not just in how we look, not just differences in how we act, but differences in even how we think. And I'm not bringing this up to rehash COVID things uh, by any means, but what happened was there was an, if you will allow it, a case study uh, on how do we really love people when the, when the heat gets turned up in the church. And in that case study, we watched as fellow believers disagreed. There were disagreements on how we take political action. There was disagreements on, uh, well, geez, I, I'm not comfortable with how relaxed my church is with how we're handling things. I'm not comfortable with how strict my church is. And so what came out of it is what in the church world we call kind of the, the great sort. And maybe a better name for it could be the great shuffle because what happened is churches shuffled up a little bit. And what we saw is people started to sort out through that to be with people that they thought alike with. And so we talk about, well, how loving people different, and we recognize that in some ways it's, an, it's a culturally charged topic. Because we start talking about that, and there might be uh, some, some tensions rising inside. You'd be like, what kind of sermon is pastor about to preach? What, what are we going to be dealing with today? Let's, let's be careful on certain things. But within the church, we recognize that we are called to love one another. There's no stipulations put on that. Inside the church, as God's people, he has told us, as John chapter 13, he gives the disciples a new commandment, which was what? That you love one another as I have loved you. As a matter of fact, when we talk about this relationship between loving each other and then next week loving people outside the church, Jesus actually says that it starts here. It starts with us. That it's our love for one another there. John chapter 13, right before Jesus is to go to the cross, he says, it's our love for each other that's actually going to be a witness to the world. So the world's going to know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. So we're starting with this because it's a very important thing for us to really drill down into. 1 John chapter 4, uh, he writes about the importance of us loving each other because God first loved us. And he says that, guys, as brothers and sisters in Christ... It's incongruent with being a follower of Jesus Christ to say that we love God, but that we don't love our brothers and sisters. This just doesn't make sense. It's inconsistent with the very nature of what it means to be a Christian because God loves our brothers and sisters. So who are we to say, God, I, that's great. I love you, but not so much them. It's like, no, if we are one in Christ, we love each other. So the question of what it means to love each other and our differences isn't to ignore those things, but to love each other in the midst, to be committed to one another in it. And Jesus uh, even speaks to this, that when the going gets tough, when the differences arise, the people that are really hard to love sometimes, that's where we get to it. 
That's where it matters how we love one another. Because Jesus says, like, sure, it's easy enough to love people who love you. Even the pagans do that, he says. Even the sinners love people who love them. Anybody can love someone who's easy to love. But as my disciples, you love those who are your enemies. You love those who are difficult to love. That's what matters. That's what we're going to drill down into. So this morning, I want to do uh, two different things in in some ways. I want to spend some time uh, talking about what it looks like to not love one another inside the church, and then some practical ways of how we can go about doing that. And, and as we talk about how we're to not love one another, my goal in that is to, to kind of bring to the surface some of the reasons why. Why should we love one another, even amidst our differences? Whether those be socioeconomical differences, whether those be gender differences, whether those be uh, generational differences, whatever the difference may be, why it is that as a brother and sister in Jesus Christ, we are to love one another. So for that, we're going to turn our attention to James uh, chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9. And for the kind of the practical uh, working out of how do we do this, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. So if you want to kind of mark those in your Bibles, that's where we're going to be spending the the majority of our time uh, together this morning. So as as we deal with these things, Again, I, when we start talking differences, I know because of the, the cultural charge in our, in our nation right now, uh, the things that typically will come to mind are, are things like ethnicity, will be things like any, any sort of diversity of things that's kind of praised and, and sought after. The world uh, kind of takes two different approaches to it. One that says you, we need to celebrate and pursue diversity no matter what. That if there's any lack of diversity, well, there's a, there's a problem. The world, in another way, will say, no, you know, finding community and loving one another is by creating strict boundaries where we fit people into boxes where we kind of look the same. You know, I was uh, thinking back to, you know, conversations in school growing up where the, con- the, the talk of school uniforms would come out. And it's like, oh, I don't want a school uniform. People say, well, it makes everybody look the same. So you're not looking, you know, so-and-so's got such clothes and so-and-so's got others. And the world will break things up into extremes like that. And as the church we're going to learn that we need to be somewhere not on either extreme, but somewhere where we recognize and appreciate and value people. So James chapter 2, if you turn there with me in verse 1, James says this. He says, my brothers, and he gives the charge right away. This is, the, this is how we don't love other people inside the church, how we ought not to, right? So he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's it right there. Simple as that, right? He says, inside the church, brothers, as you hold the faith, don't show partiality. In other words, don't play the favorites game, guys. That's not how we operate as followers of Jesus. Don't play favorites. Don't play favorites. And he gives a case study, if you will. Now, if you know what's going on in the, in the letter of James here, he's writing not to a particular church. So uh, this case study that he's giving probably isn't a, a situation that he's hearing is actually happening. But he's saying, here's an example. Here's an example of how we may find ourselves showing partiality as we hold the faith. He says in verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, right? So there's that assembly, right? So what he's assuming is your church is gathered. Let's say Sunday morning, we're here and we're, we're, we're fellowshipping with one another, we're doing this, and someone with fine clothing and a big old gold ring on their finger walks into the church. Meanwhile, he says there's a poor man in shabby, ragged, torn clothing, and he walks in. He says in verse 3, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, will you sit here in a good place? While you say to the poor man, will you stand over there or sit down at my feet? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. 
Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, if you really fulfill the royal law, verse 8, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And I think what James does for us in this case study, right? In this, here's the example, guys, the rich man, poor man. He shows us through this example some of the dangers that can creep into the church when we start to play favorites. And we need to heed those dangers. We need to examine them and make sure that we are, we are aware of the dangers that can creep into our fellowship. So we ask the question, what's going on? He gives this example, and you know, we, we could deal with it and say, well, gee whiz, is, is this the only case where partiality matters? Is it only a matter of wealth so that the, the rich people can come into church and we're going to give them seats right up in the front you know, where they can see everything clearly and, you know, and they're not distracted by all kinds of things, and that's, that's where we need to be careful about showing partiality. Meanwhile, let the poor people do whatever they're going to do. Put them in the back. Put them in the other room. They can watch it on the TV and see what's going on. Is, is that the extent of what James is dealing with? I think it, what his case study is doing is providing us with an example, if you will. Because if you see what's taking place, is there is an evaluation going on of other people based on external factors. These people walk in, you look at their clothing and say, well, man, that person's got a must have a big checkbook. Let's make sure we give them a place of prominence. Meanwhile, the other person, no, 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 we'll let them sit in the back. What's happening is we're we're determining value and treating people differently based on what the world defines as important. Where the world may give value and authority and prominence. But within the church says we're, we're rewriting that. That's unbecoming of a Christian. It's unbecoming of a church to say, we're going to evaluate you simply based on external factors. Because what James is saying is there's a lot more at stake here. There's a lot more underneath the surface that we may not see with the eyes. And so as we dive into this, some of the dangers that we're going to uh, talk about that James brings up is, number one, when we start playing favorites, no matter what the external factors may be, the, someone's vocation, someone's age, someone's ethnicity, some, whatever that external thing that we can look at and say, I see a difference here. And we start picking and treating people differently based on things. Number one, he says we disregard God's work. Look at verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? Right away, when we start treating people differently based on whatever these externals are, we're saying, it doesn't matter what God's done in this person's life. It doesn't matter how God sees them. It doesn't matter what God has how he's defined them, what he's given them. We're going to treat them how the world will treat them. And so we say, whatever, God, in practice. It doesn't so much matter what you're doing. It doesn't, I don't care so much uh, what you have done. But we have to stop and recognize, as James is saying, is this, hasn't God chosen to work differently than the world does? I mean, we see it in the story with uh, King David, right? When they're looking for this new king, and they bring all the sons of Jesse through the room. And they're like, yep, it's not him. Yep, it's not him. And they're like, well, here's this puny little kid that's out in the field. God doesn't just look at external appearances. God's dealing with what's on the inside. So as Christians, it's unbecoming of us to look at external appearances, whatever they may be, and say, we're going to treat you differently based on those. Because of those. It's just, it's simply unbecoming within the church. It is not the way we're to love one another. When we play favorites, guys, we're disregarding the grace and mercy and the blessing of God that he has bestowed on a brother and sister. And who are we to do that? Who are we to do that? We say, in effect, God, it's great that you have that relationship with them. 
It's great that you've given them. It's great that, that they have salvation. It's great that they have this, this wonderful relationship with you, but that holds no bearing on my relationship with them whatsoever. And so we disregard God's work in their life. Secondly, James tells us that a danger in playing favorites is we actually will go about disrespecting each other. Not only do we disregard God's work and what God says of these individuals, but we disrespect them and them as well. Verse 6, but you've dishonored the poor man, he says. You've dishonored him. It's treating two different people in two different ways and, and disrespecting one over the other. Treating them as if they don't have the value or the dignity that is inscribed upon them. Now, as Christians, we step back and we're like, hey, you know what? We recognize that all people are created in the image of God. There's not one person who's lived on this earth that hasn't been created in the, in the image of God. So we should respect and value all people, if for no other reason than that alone, to treat people with dignity and to treat them with respect. But when we start playing favorites and acting different towards one another and treating people different, creating castes uh, where you, you fit over there and not in here, aren't we saying that someone's not as important? Are we not saying by our actions that someone has less dignity than another? Well, Jeremy, we don't do that, though. We didn't have anybody standing at the door saying, well, you can go in this room or that. We don't have rows in our sanctuary marked off for certain people. We don't do this kind of stuff. Or do we? I wonder, as I look at a church like ours, where I wonder if there's not sometimes a divide between not ethnicities or ways of thinking per se but age I wonder if there's not times in our fellowship where maybe some of the, the younger folks would say oh I've got my young crew of friends no need to associate with the older saints or vice versa so we sit and we gather and we fellowship but we, we in some ways at times maybe have some divide I wonder if there's not times where we need to check our hearts on these things. Who do you find yourself hanging out with around this place? When we're all eating yummy treats after the service, who do you, who do you tend to drift towards to talk to? The people who are like you? The people who are in a similar stage of life? The people you've known for eons? Or do you cross those generational lines from time to time? Because sometimes we, maybe if we're really honest with each other, we need to check our hearts as well. Because the younger people in the church could show disrespect towards the elders by saying, hey, I don't, I'm not really going to give you my time because you're not in the stage of life I'm in. Maybe some of us who are older may dishonor the youngers by saying, they got just too much energy for me. There's too much crazy. And I'm not just talking those of us as adults, but I'm talking us as a whole church. We got a ton of kids around here. And I'm just going to speak to us as a, for a moment here. I don't know if we pay attention to it a whole lot, but we got some youth group kids around, and you know what happens a lot of times on Sundays? We'll, we'll break our fellowship in here, and the youth group kids show up in a room in the back of a church, or they're not talking to anybody. And you want to be like, well, come out and fellowship. But how often are we going to the teenagers in our, cult, in our church and getting to know them? So I say all this because sometimes we may, may look from the inside out and say, listen, there's an issue maybe in other churches of playing favorites. And I'll say, well, and I'm not saying we're failing at this, brothers and sisters. Don't hear me on that. But what I am saying is I think we've all got room to grow. I think there's areas of opportunity for us, even here. Even here in a community, in a church, where we kind of are a lot alike in many ways. 
We need to examine our hearts on this. Because we don't want to dis- disregard what God's doing in each other's lives. We don't want to disrespect each other either. Reality is, in a group like ours, we feel stuff like this in greater ways. It's easier to hide it. It's evident. You feel it because we can look around this room and we know each other's names. You can look around this room right now and say, I know so-and-so is not here today. That's a blessing of a church like ours. It's a privilege that God's given to us. We need to be careful that as we go about uh, doing life as the body, loving each other, that we aren't just uh, so associated with the people who are in the same bracket as we are, that fit in the same boxes as we do. But in the church, that we don't show any level of partiality to one over another, but that we treat each other with dignity and love and respect. So we don't break down the body that God has brought together. You know, one of the, one of the ways, frankly, and I'll just be honest with you, that I was convicted of this this week, and I shared it with our small group, is this. When I talk to people, especially because I wear the hat of being a pastor, when I talk to people, it's the only time I talk to somebody when I need something from them. And God convicted me of that. Because there are people, and I know that there are people in my life that I tend to talk to them, for the most part, only when, they need, when I need something from them. And I was like, man, what am I conveying to my brother and sister? Other than, you're important and valuable to me when you have something to offer me. That's no way to build a family. It's no way to be the body of Christ. So I don't know, I'm sharing that to show you that there's, there's a place in each of our hearts where we need to bring them before God and say, God, am I showing partiality to your people? Am I showing partiality in any way in my life right now, in my engagement and involvement with your body that I need to confess and bring before you? That I could walk in love and truly love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because it's a dangerous thing when we start playing favorites. Another danger that James brings up we see in verse, uh, verses 2 and 4, kind of in the outplaying of this, uh, this case study. He says what the, the danger is that when we start playing favorites, we could actually divide the church. You see, he's like, hey, you, you rich man, you come and sit here in a place of prominence. And you poor individual, you, you just kind of go over there. And there's a distinction that's made between the two. And he says that. He says, are you not making distinctions? Verse 4, have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, maybe, maybe I'm not maliciously doing that. But he says this is what's happening. And these distinctions, maybe it's a rough word for us in English because we think distinctions, and we use distinctions for all kinds of things. We distinct each other in this church between those who are old and those who are younger. From the infants to the oldest of the saints, we recognize differences. That's not what the word distinctions is meaning. But it carries with it this idea of then creating divisions based on those distinctions. You're going to fit here, and you're going to fit here, and we're going to do this, and, and this is how we're going to split the body up so that haven't you just divided the whole body? Isn't the point of the assembly what James is saying, to bring everyone together, not to divide? We're being counterintuitive to the very essence of what's happening. We need to be careful on these things. And we need to be careful we don't take it too far either because there's some who might say, well, wait a minute, isn't that exactly what happens when when a church tries to do small groups? We've had people within Village Bible Church say that. Man, when you do small groups, aren't you just breaking the church up into little cliques? Sure, in a way. But is breaking the church up to, to study and to fellowship always bad? Well, if you look at Romans chapter 16, you'll see Paul write a letter to the whole church in Rome. And as he writes in Romans 16, he recognizes that there's a church that meets in the home of Prisca and Aquila. He says there's saints that are over there with Philologus and Julia and Nereus and Olympus. He says there are brothers who are with the Syncretists and Phlegon and Hermes and Patrobus and Hermas. He's like, he recognizes that here, I'm writing this to the church. 
But the church, there's a church here. In this home. There's a church here in this home. So I, we just need to be careful that we don't say that anytime the church uh, tends to, to do something in groups, that it's a, inherently a bad thing. Well, what then are we talking about? It seems as though when you're looking at James' example, it's when we have systematically tried to divide the church. You know, for, for an example with our church, and I'm going to bring this up because it's been brought up before. We have two small groups. And if we were to say that anyone over the age of such and such an age is only allowed to go to one group versus the other, that would be what James is talking about. Where we divide and treat people differently and categorize people based on their differences. And it becomes the intention of the church, whether maliciously at origin or not, he says it's the evil. It's an evil thing. So it becomes dangerous when we build cliques. And we do it with youth group all the time. Josh, we've talked about it with youth group stuff. It's always like, well, how do you break up cliques? How do you break up cliques? And it's like, well, you know what? At the end of the day, what's a clique? A group of friends. Right? You know, try to say, don't be friends with these people? Probably not. So what do you look for? Well, when a group of friends is an open barrier. Say someone else is welcome in. There's not a wall that's put up that says, here's us and our crew and everyone else stay out. But when we look around the church, especially within the church, say, man, there's always one more seat at the table. Come. Come be part of it. Come fellowship. Come encourage Come share your wisdom. Come share your thoughts. Come share your experiences. Come and be a part of the group. That's what we're dealing with. And the last danger that James will bring up, we see come in verse 8 and 9, really through verse 10. This is, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, if you play the favorites game, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, what? Is guilty of it all. So he warns us, heed the danger of playing favorites. Because you disregard what God's doing and what God has done in someone's life you disrespect your brother or your sister directly. You can divide the church. And not only that, it puts you in a place where you're, you're in disobedience to God's word. Those are all dangerous things that we need to heed. That we ought to uh, take time to examine and, and pay careful attention to that because what the, James is saying is, listen, don't go there. It does no good. It brings no value to the body. He's not saying, listen, this, you know, some favoritism is fine. Some partiality, no big deal. He's like, you start, you start going down that road. It's going to lead you to a world of hurt. And it's not going to be good for you individually. It's not going to be good for the church. So if we want to talk about how we love people in the church, especially those who are different than us, right off the bat... God's word is telling us don't love people differently based on our differences. Because you and I, we are one in Christ. The last time I checked, the scripture says that each of us are saved by grace through faith. There isn't one of us in this room, there isn't one of us in the broader body of Christ that has done anything to merit a higher prominence within the church than another. We are all here by grace. We are all here by the mercy of God. So who are we to ascribe prominence to one over another when God in his infinite love and mercy has bestowed on each of us every spiritual blessing in Christ? When he has given each of us the same salvation that we don't deserve. So we are to love. We are to love one another. 
That's why I've uh, intentionally titled this sermon, in case you're looking at your sermon notes, if you're keeping notes, you don't have to, but if you are, and you're like, why in the world did we call the, is there a typo in this where the term favorites is crossed out? No. It's on purpose. Because even, even in the church, we have a propensity that we are prone to, to split ourselves up into groups of people who are just like us. And we may be quick to say, we don't want to do it. We won't do it with people who look different. But I know from the last five years that we'll do it with people who think different. So let's examine our hearts and recognize that in this place, in God's family, we are not a people who shows partiality. But we are all saved by the blood of Christ. Instead, we're to love. And we're to be committed to each other as family. And I'm not one, and those of you who know me well, I'm not one for sappy lines. Like sometimes saying, hey, as a church, we're a family, that, all, that almost itself feels a little sappy to me. And so I'm not saying this to be sappy, but to be genuine. Because the scriptures speak of us as, as family, as brothers and sisters. And within that family, we have a duty to each other that we are to honor. And so if you have your Bibles marked, turn over to Romans chapter 12 with me. And I think I may have alluded to this a little bit a couple weeks ago, but we're going to spend some time looking at verses 9 through 21. And you're thinking, well, gee whiz, are we going to get out of here in time today? We will, don't worry. We'll get there. But Paul speaks to, and I think in this passage, because there's so much that we could speak, say about this. How then do we love each other in our differences? The scriptures are full with teaching on that. They're full of it. It's all over the place. So how do you, in, in, in a few moments, bring clarity and definition to how we do this thing? Well, I think Paul here in Romans chapter 12 gives us a glimpse to it. So look at uh, verse 9. Right away he says this, Let love be genuine. Oh, and by the way, if you wanted to cheat and look a little bit above this, Paul acknowledges the fact that as we gather, there are differences, if none other than the way that God has gifted us. It's the whole body thing that we've talked about. There's those who teach and they're, and they're uh, teaching and service and serving. The one in the, who exhorts in his exhortation, who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Right? There, there are different giftings based on the gifts of God by the grace of God. And so within this, he says what? Verse 9, let love be genuine, pure, without hypocrisy. You know what that means? It means that you actually care about one another. Because what you, we could do is, after the service today, maybe it's going to be the one Sunday where there is just an overwhelming uh, presence of just talking and gathering and fellowship because maybe because pastor got up and talked about loving one another, we're going to try to really do that. And it's going to be really hard for some. And, and we're going to do it with a fake smile on. And that's what Paul's saying. That's not genuine love. Because we could go and say, all right, we're just going to do this because somebody told me I have to do it. Or we could stop and say, God, would you do a work in my heart that I would genuinely have a care for my brother or my sister? And I'm not just putting a smile on to be nice, but that my heart is genuinely concerned about them. Let love be genuine without hypocrisy. Then you'll notice uh, later there in verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. So uh, verse 9, he uses that uh, Greek word agape love, right? That without distinction, without uh, uh, defining love, it's a, it's a commitment. You're just going to love, and you're going to love genuinely. Well, then we like to talk about the Greek forms of love. You got the agape, you got storge, you got phileo, you got eros, and you got all these different kinds of love that the Greeks like to talk about. And, you know, what's interesting here is in verse 10, what Paul does, he combines two of them. I don't know if it's like he just made up a word, but this brotherly affection, he combines the phileo love and the storge love, and he's like, this storge, this philistros love is what he calls it. Crazy Greek words. And essentially what it is, is this phileo love is kind of that tender affection that you have towards a friend. 
Like, man, I love this guy. I love this girl. Like, we're, we're such good friends. I love being around him. And that's phileo love, right? This, this, uh, this tender affection. And then this storge love is like your kids. You're like, I love them even though they drive me nuts sometimes. But instinctively, I love my children. And he's combining the two of them and saying, not only do we just love because we're family, but we love like we would love our friends because you can pick and choose your friends. You can't pick and choose your family. He's saying, we do it all in the church. So we love each other with the same commitment as we do family and the tenderness we would with a friend. That's how we love. That's how we go about doing this. That's what we are called to. Brotherly affection in the church. Now, what on earth does that look like? What does that look like when it comes to the person that I'm looking at who's different than me, thinks different than me, lives different than me? He says this, outdo one another in showing honor. And I know I mentioned that, but you know the, the first way this comes up is, is we honor each other. Honor each other. Outdo each other in showing honor. You know what literally Paul is saying there? is he's saying you take the lead in showing preference to the other person. How often do we say in the church, well, if so-and-so really wants fellowship, they can make the first move. If so-and-so really, I'm going to wait for them to to act first. I'm going to wait for them to initiate. And what Paul is saying, he's like, that's not it. You take the lead in it. That as Christians... It is not your prerogative to sit back and wait for someone else to act first. No, as a Christian, you act. Outdo one another in showing honor. That means you're going to give preference to another person. You seek out their interests. What are their needs? What are their interests? And you place them. The scriptures actually tell us in Philippians 2 to consider them as greater than yourself. That's what it means to outdo one another in showing honor. That we don't come uh, to the body, to our family, looking to your own interests. I don't show up to a gathering like this saying, what, what's in this for me? And the reason I don't show up that way is not because, well, he's the pastor. He's supposed to. No, because the scriptures say that I shouldn't consider my own interests, but yours. We do that. We honor one another so that as we're gathering, I'm looking at you guys as the church and I'm saying, what do the mortels need? What do the temples need? What do the townsleys need? And so on and so forth. That my concern is the needs and interests of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then I don't just sit there and say, man, what a great need. But then you act on it. And so he goes on from there and he says, not only do we just honor one another where we consider each other's interests, but then verse 11 he says, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, and contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I mean, in some ways you're like, why do you even need to preach on these verses? Because Paul's just like, this is what you do. This is it. Let's, let's just shoot straight. So we honor one another, and our honoring them should motivate us to help. To help our brothers and sisters. It's exactly what James would go on to do later in chapter 2, right? When he talks about faith and works. He's like, well, what good is faith if it says, hey, you know, you know use the example of works and say, if you're looking at your brother who's cold, and you're like, man, I hope you get warm. As it's getting chilly outside and you're not willing to give him a coat, what good is that? What good is the, the thought? What good is the belief if it does not have action? So when it comes to the church, what good is it for us to gather and say, man, what does so-and-so need if I'm not willing to be moved to a place of action to meet that need? Does that mean you're going to meet every person's need? Of course not. We should be moved to, to do so. We recognize that, you know, while we often think of needs as financial things, needs come in all shapes and sizes. We don't just look around at our brothers and say, man, who needs dinner on Thursday? We would say, no, it's, 
Who needs a word of encouragement? Who needs a pat on the back? Who maybe needs a stern word? Who needs to just know that they've got someone in their corner with them? Who is it that needs to and wants to be part of the, the service that's going on, but they've got kids, and so I can serve, by, like we were talking about in small group, by, by helping out in the nursery or something like that? That our concern and care for one another will move us to a place of action where we will help and we will meet those needs. I was just talking to a friend uh, this week who, who said, hey, I, I made a point to get together with someone because I noticed that they, they just seemed a little down. And so they carved time out of their schedule to say, I'm going to make time to get together with them. I don't have an agenda for it. I just thought, well, maybe they needed a word of encouragement. Simple as that. Honor one another and help. Does our concern move us to action? And we look at um, ourselves, and in some ways, this whole idea just flies in the face of our culture today. Because our culture today says, pick yourselves up by the bootstraps. Don't ask for help. You've got this on your own. You don't need nobody. And God says, well, that's just not true. That in this body, we need each other. In this body, we're designed by God to serve each other. And so I wonder if as we do this, as, as we go, as what Paul's saying, not lazy, not slothful, but fervent in spirit. I mean, literally picture the pot of boiling water with, with the, all the energy, all the activity that's going on. That's what he's saying. We're, we're fervent. We're moved. We're active. And we're serving one another. We're serving the Lord. He's saying that's the picture as we go about this. And I wonder that sometimes because of the way and the culture we live in, we tend to look out for ourselves. We say, I look out for mine. That's my responsibility. And God says, not in the church, buddy. In the church, we look out for each other. And I wonder if we don't at times come to a place like church looking for our own because we feel like that's what we got to do. And I just wonder a couple things. One, that if we all came and with that mindset, I'm not going to be lazy. I'm going to look out to honor and outdo and initiate honor with my brother and sister. And I'm going to be fervent in doing that. I wonder, I wonder if there won't be times that you're going to walk away from helping your brother and sister and you're going to be like, I am more blessed than I think I gave. I received more of a blessing than I gave. I just wonder. And then I also wonder if we are all doing that and, and I am fervently serving a brother and sister that I wouldn't also have a brother and sister who's fervently serving me. And in God's way of doing things, all of our needs would be met. Maybe to an even greater extent than if we just looked after our own. And it's a wonder then that as we do this, we would do as Paul says in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. That there is a beauty to this. We are serving and in rhythm with each other. This week, um, we gathered a bunch of the, the staff of the church and we were spending time and an illustration came up of a crew team if you're familiar with crew at all, obviously I'm not, um, but I know what one is, right? A crew team, the, the team of rowers in a boat, right? Have you ever watched a video of them do this? Are they, they're not all rowing at different paces and doing different things and hitting each other's oars. No, they are synced up, all of them in unison, all of them on the same beat, all of them in harmony with one another, that they're not working against each other, but they're working with, with each stroke of the oar. They're working in harmony. Every stroke, moving them further along with the same goal, the same direction, the same pace. And I wonder, as Paul speaks of us living in harmony with one another, that that's what it would be like. That we would be united in that. That we, too, would be operating with the same pace, with the same goal, in unison with one another 
Not combating each other, but helping. If that's the picture that he brings to it. So that we're not just going around saying, well, I'm going to deal with, with my thing and, and, and I'm going to live and do stuff at my pace and if you can't keep up, you're lost. But that we would come concerned not about myself, but with others. Philippians chapter 2. Paul so beautifully captures this. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's amazing because what Paul says is, here's a high task. Consider others more important than yourself. Look to their interests, not your own. Be of one accord, of full accord with each other. He's like, that's a brutally high task for us as a people. But just so you know, your example is Christ. And Christ did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant and he learned obedience even to the point of death, death on a cross. And so there is no point of humility that for any of us that will surpass that of Christ. Because none of us are God who would take on flesh. None of us are God who would die. And if that's the extent of Christ's humility, how much more should our humility go? So not only do we honor one another, not only do we help one another, not only do we live in harmony with another, but Paul tells us in Romans, and he tells us there in, in Philippians, that we, if we are going to love people of difference from us, we have to humble ourselves. You can't do it pridefully. You can't love others when you're loving yourself first. You have to humble yourself. That's what he's, he brings uh, to bear here in verse 16. He says, don't be haughty. In other words, don't think so highly of yourself. Don't be so conceited and full of yourself. He says, but associate with the lowly. One commentator even makes the connection with the lowly, not just uh, to the humble of, of spirit, but to the humble of tasks. Saying that I'm not so good that I'm above cleaning toilets, just as an example. That I'm a part of the body and I'll do what it takes. I'm not too good for anything. Don't be so full of yourself. And then he goes on, don't be wise, never be wise in your own sight. And then he goes into all this, repay no one evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. That our concern is for the whole. That I'm not just coming to get mine. When I'm wrong, then we will wrong each other. That I'm not just seeking revenge. I'm going to let God do God's thing. As a matter of fact, he goes down here and he says, the vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals in his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In our pride, we can lead ourselves to think too much of ourselves. In pride, I can be more concerned about Jeremy than any of you. In pride, I can be moved to, to trying to just get revenge and making sure everything's equal. But in God's kingdom, what, what Paul is telling us is don't forget that who is your enemy today may be your brother tomorrow. So it's not your job to go out executing the judgments of God. It's your job to serve. It's your job to love. And to do so requires a great deal of humility. 
We recognize, brothers and sisters, that each and every day, as the church, we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. I spent probably 20 minutes this week, there's that old, uh, that old picture frame in the back office of all of the pastors of this church going back to like 1874. And I spent some time sitting there just looking at it, looking at the faces, the names. You know, that's humbling to me. Because it reminds me that, that ministry has been happening here for longer than I've been here and longer than any of you have been here. That God's been at work in this place through this church longer than any of us have been alive. We are part of something so much bigger than us. So we come, we come with that mentality that, that this is God's thing. We get to play a part in it. To do so, we act in humility. To do so, uh, he's going to use people who are different than us. And he's doing a lot more than he's just doing here in Shabana. If you've ever had a chance to be on a missions trip or somewhere or, or go and meet believers around the world, you'll really, there are some great, genuine people who love the Lord in every corner of the world. And it's an awesome thing. And while in this local gathering there's difference and there's not difference, you know, there, there's so much to be celebrated in how God brings together the nations. God brings together people who are completely and utterly different than each other. And we are united in one thing, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. In Revelation, we're, we're told that in, in heaven there's a great multitude, and the scripture says a multitude that no one could number. And it's a multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and all languages, and they stand before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're all clothed in white, the Scripture says, with palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And what a picture that's going to be for us one day in heaven. All the difference, a multitude that you can't number all different from every tribe, language, and nation, but all with one voice praising God. So even here in this church, in our differences, whatever they may be, we with one voice praise God. Because we all belong to the same Lord. We all have been saved by the same grace. And so we all lift our voices together to praise Him in unison with each other. So to close today, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, before our worship team comes up, they're going to lead us in a closing song. But I'm going to ask you uh, for just a minute, and if you're going to fall asleep, then don't close your eyes. If you can stay awake, close your eyes. And we're going to play a song, and I want you to listen to the voices of the song. Because to me, this, is, this song has always been such a beautiful and powerful picture of just the things that we've been talking about. The differences that we have all coming together with one voice to sing praise to our God. So as the song plays, the team will come up and they're going to get ready to lead us. But I want you just in these moments to stop and, and to really appreciate the glory of our God and the fact that we with one voice get to sing his praises with one another. Mm -hmm.